hearts and minds always be focused on you. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So the first thing as we look at the text here, the author John uh, uses the designation of word to describe Jesus. And now for John to use the word word or logos in Greek, we must get the simple fact that John's trying to say something, right? And if he's trying to say something, then he's trying to reveal something. But what? What is John revealing to us in this text? What has John revealed to us? What's he trying to communicate? Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, we read, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So we see that God has spoken to us by his Son. You know, in Greek philosophy, uh, there was an understanding of an unknown force behind everything. There was this unknown creative force behind everything. And it was unknown, it was impersonal, and this is what they referred to as the Logos. Now, John is telling us here that the Logos is not impersonal. The Logos is a person. And Jesus, in John 14, 9, says this. He says, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Or simply put, Jesus is the, visible rep- is the visible revelation of what invisible deity is like. And this manifestation was through a human medium so that we, being human, could understand it. And so in these first five verses of John, he communicates simply this. And this is what he's revealing to us. The gospel. He's revealing to us the gospel. But what is the gospel? The gospel is simply this. Jesus. Jesus is the good news. It doesn't get any better than that, right? Jesus is the gospel. But if we were to peel that back just a little bit more, it is the person and work of Jesus. And through this text, John is going to reveal to us in these first five verses of the gospel of John, the person and the work of Jesus. So if you're a person who likes outlines or points and, and you're someone who takes notes as I do, I want to give you three main points today. Point number one is going to be who the word is. John reveals to us who the word is. Point number two, what the word has done, the work of the word. And then finally, we're going to look at part three, behold our God. All right? So the first main point is the person of the word. And John says, in the beginning was the word. So looking at the person of the word, we see that the word is preexistent. We see the preexistence of the word. As you read this text, it should immediately take your mind to Genesis 1, right? In Genesis 1, we read, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So we read in Genesis that there is a beginning, unlike what many people may teach. There is a beginning, and in the beginning, the Word was there, right? John clearly communicates this. And so for the Word to be there in the beginning, when the beginning is happening, tells us that He is preexistent. 
Now, think about this. In John 8, 5, 8, Jesus is having this confrontation and this you know, conversation with some of the religious leaders. And Jesus tells them, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, that's not bad grammar. That's Jesus referring back to the Old Testament. He's referring back to Exodus 3, right? And in that statement, Jesus is telling us that he's the God of the burning bush. In Exodus 3, 13 through 14, we read, as Moses is having this conversation with the burning bush, he says, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Now, that right there is God saying, I am self-existent. And so we see that that is Jesus there in his pre-incarnate state. He is saying that he is pre-existent and he is self-existent. And Jesus is telling the Jews in that moment, I am there in the burning bush. But he is also, John is telling us that he is at the beginning. He is in the beginning. He's not just in Exodus 3, but he is in Genesis 1, right? And so we clearly see in the text, in this text, that John is revealing to us that the word is preexistent and he is self-existent. Jesus is not a created being, just to be clear. Now, many people, many cults will teach that, that Jesus is a created being from God. That's simply not true. That's not what the Bible speaks of. It's not what the Bible clearly teaches. The Bible clearly teaches that Jesus has always existed, and he is self-existent, and he is pre-existent. The Bible speaks very clear to this. So in revealing to us who the Word is, John first tells us of the pre-existence and the self-existence of the Word. But then, continuing to reveal to us who the Word is, John tells us that, and the Word was with God. The Word was with God. Thus, he is revealing to us the fellowship of the Word. Now, if I were to ask you guys, define love to me. What is love? Many of you would, you know, you would say that love is kind. Love is patient. Love is self-sacrificing. And by all means, that would be true. Many of you would just simply quote 1 Corinthians 13, right? And obviously that is true as well. But at its most basic, fundamental, core meaning, love is relational. Love is giving. Love is self-sacrificing. Love is kind and patient. Absolutely. But at its core, love is relational. And so think about this. We know that God is love, right? The Bible clearly tells us that God is love. And so if love is fundamental in a relationship, then think about this. There has to be a relationship there for all eternity past. Because if there was a moment in time in all eternity past in which God did not love, then God would not be God, right? And so what we must understand that for all eternity past, there has been an inter-Trinitarian relationship and fellowship between the Word and God, thus maintaining all the characteristics and attributes of God. 
because he has always loved and he's always been there because the word was with God. Now, the text here, if you uh, dig down into the grammar, depicts actually a face-to-face -face relationship, a face-to-face -face conversation happening between the word and God. And that relationship has always existed except for one moment in time. If you think about any moment in time and throughout the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, there was ever a time when there was not this communication. You should think of the cross, right? At the cross, Jesus cries out in Matthew 27, 46. He says, at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Thus fulfilling Psalm 22. But in that brief moment, the human nature of Jesus was broken from the relationship with the Father, and that's why he cried out. Now, understanding this relationship between the Father and the Son, between God and the Word, and the fact that that has existed for all eternity past, should give us a little bit of insight into our own salvation, right? If you will, turn with me to John 17, and let's look at verses uh, 5 through 9 real quick. John 17, verses 5 through 9. I want you to look through this with me, please. I think it's important for us all to be on the same page. John 17, verses 5 through 9. We read, and now, and of course, think about the context here. Jesus is there in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's getting ready to go to the cross. He's there in the Garden, and he is praying. He is He's got blood all over him because he's sweating drops of blood and he's crying. And he's having this time with the Father. It's the Holy of Holies, right? And this is considered the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And let's, let's look and see and peer into the Holy of Holies for just a moment. Let's see what he says. Jesus says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Let me repeat that. I have manifested your name to the people whom you have given me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. They have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. You get that? What a, what a prayer. You know, in this amazing prayer, you should get this simple fact. That... There has existed a relationship between the Father and Son, as the text tells us, before the world existed. And because an attribute of love is giving, the Father gave the Son a gift. What is that gift? Well, as the text tells us. The text tells us that gift is a redeemed humanity, right? And this redeemed humanity is a people that God has chosen and he is called from every tribe and every tongue, every tongue across this planet for all eternity, right? And for the history of mankind. 
The Father gave the Son this gift, but the Son had to redeem this gift, right? And then as you read through Scripture and as you finally get to Revelation, you see the Son giving this gift back to the Father. And so the story of the universe and the history of mankind and the history of salvation is really this love relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit continually giving to each other, the Father giving to the Son, the Son giving to the Father, and so forth and so forth. Now, we must understand that we as human beings are simply bystanders and benefactors of this love relationship between the Father and the Son. We are not at the center of the story, despite what many may teach and may make you think. God is the center of this story. The triune God is the main and center character. And in this season of giving, you know, may we have a clearer picture and clearer view of God and who he is and who we are. Right? May we have a clearer picture of that and have a better understanding and appreciation of our own salvation. Now, just to illustrate this, I just want to tell you, um, when I was a young kid, my grandmother would, uh, would always give me gifts. On Saturday afternoon, we would go to the, uh, the TGNY in Jefferson City, Tennessee. And every Saturday, we would go there. My grandmother would buy me a little Hot Wheels car, give me a little G.I. Joe or something like that. It was, you know, these things were of very small monetary value. However, because my grandmother gave them to me, they were of immense value to me. Even to this day, my wife can tell you that me and my grandmother are tight. I mean, we are extremely tight. And I thank God, I, I talk to her every Sunday and every Monday. And you can set your watch by it. And if I don't call her, let me just tell you, I hear about it. <laughs> but we are, we are very close. But the thing is, is even today she gives me small gifts of very little monetary value. But because she gives them to me, my house is filled with things that my grandmother has given me, and they mean so very much. But the point is, is that those gifts, they in and of themselves have no intrinsic value. But because my grandmother gave them to me, they mean something. The value is in the giver, not the gift. As it is with us. What we must understand is, is that we in and of ourselves have we have no intrinsic value in and of ourselves. We have value because the Father has given us to the Son. That's why we are valuable. And may we find our identity, our worth, and our meaning in life in Him and in Him alone. And that's how we find true joy, and that's how we know our place, and that's how we can have true happiness, is knowing that our value comes from him so john has revealed to us and giving us an understanding of who the word is he has given to us the first point of understanding that the word is pre-existent and he is self-existent the second point is the fellowship of the word before the world existed now finally in revealing to us who the word is john states and the word was god thus revealing to us the deity of the word. Now, in this statement, it's, uh, it gives us the clearest evidence of who the word is. The word is God. 
Now, I do want to warn you that there are people who will come to your doorstep on a Saturday afternoon, and their Bible will not say this. And their incorrect translation of the Bible, it will not say this. In their incorrect Bible translation, if they pull this out, it will say this. And the word was a God. That's what their Bible will say. Now, nobody except for them recognizes their translation as a legitimate translation of the text because whether they believe the Bible or not, they do not accept this as an actual valid translation because there are many grammatical errors with this. I'm just going to give you a couple here just to equip you in case you encounter this on a Saturday afternoon. But first, the Greek text literally word for word says this. Now, I, I'm someone who enjoys reading Greek. I'm a geek. Yes, I am. Um, I don't say that ostentatiously. I just say that in a way to give validity to what I'm about to tell you. But in the Greek text, it literally, word for word, it says this, kaitheos ein logos, literally word for word in English, and God was the word, all right? Our translations, whether you got a KJV or an ESV, it reads, and the word was God. But in the Greek, it says, and the word was God, right? I'm sorry, and the word and God was the word. You get that correct? <laughs> okay, but the simple point here is that in English, if you wanted to emphasize something in English, what would you do? Right? You would uh, put something in all caps. Or you would uh, put a thousand exclamation marks beside it. Or you would send an emoji or whatever. But in the Greek text, if you wanted to emphasize something, you would put the word in the front of the sentence. Right? Because in the Greek, where the word is in the sentence doesn't matter as far as its function in the sentence. But it does matter as far as its emphasis. And that's what John has done here. He has moved theos, God, from the back of the sentence to the front of the sentence. So he is simply emphasizing the deity of the word when he puts it like he does. And I love it because... John's Greek is the most elementary, most basic Greek that there is. But in this very, very basic Greek, he has such profound truth of who the word is. And it's amazing. But second, in the Greek language, there is no indefinite article. There is no a, only the. There's only a definite article for any of the, those of you who enjoy grammar. So to insert an A before God is to be adding to Scripture something that just simply isn't there, right? It's not there. God in this statement is the predicate nominative, all right? Theos is the predicate nominative, but logos is the subject. So simply put, God is describing the Word, not the other way around. God is describing the Word. It's important to get this right because you're going to come up with some bad theology one way or the other. You're going to come up with being someone who believes that Jesus changes forms or you're going to believe that Jesus was a created being. And so it's very important to translate this correctly. Now, I know that's a lot of technical details, but the simple point is this. The heresies of the modern day are nothing new. 
okay? These heresies of the day are nothing new. One of my favorite stories and favorite uh, biographies is the biography of Athanasius. Now, if none of you know who Athanasius is, Athanasius was the bishop of Alexandria in the 300s. If you think back on your history lessons, you know, what was going on in the 300s, right? Well, Emperor Constantine was the emperor of the Roman Empire. Now, at that time, Emperor Constantine became a Christian. Now, let that God judge that or not. Well, that's another day for debate for another day. But he, in, he be, became a Christian. And in that time, he declared, when he did become a Christian, via the Edict of Milan, he said that Christianity is going to be the state religion. It's going to be the official religion of the Roman Empire. Now, when he did that, something else happened. All the persecutions that were coming against the Christians at that time ceased, right? The state-sponsored persecutions ceased. Now, as a result of that, guess what happened? Guess what happened? Heresy started creeping into the church, right? Because persecution is a purifying factor. And so one of the heresies that started creeping into the church was the heresy called Arianism. Arianism comes from uh, Arius, who was teaching that Jesus was a created being and that Jesus was of the similar substance to God, not the same substance, and that he was a created being. And so this heresy started creeping into the church all over the world. And then they got together and they said, okay, we've got to have a council. And so there was a council called in the city of Nicaea, or modern-day Turkey. And at the Council of Nicaea, Athanasius was a true defender of the faith and a true champion for truth. And he held to the biblical truth as all these leaders of the church gathered. And he held the biblical truth that Jesus is, a, is of the same substance as the Father and that he is not a created being. And so ultimately, when this council ceased and was finished, the church declared that Jesus was of the same substance. And that is of very, very important significance because if Jesus is of the similar substance, but not the same substance, then we are saved by works, not by grace. It has extreme, extreme importance, the person of Jesus. And so that's why John is telling us here. John is telling us of the deity of the word. And so that heresy, we're still fighting it even today. But thankfully, Athanasius, one of my champions and heroes in the faith, held to biblical truth, and he fought that battle for many years thereafter. But, all right, so in revealing to us who the Word is, John has showed us, first and foremost, the preexistence and the self-existence of the Word. He showed us the fellowship of the Word, and he showed us the deity of the Word. So now let's transition to the work of the Word and the work of the Gospel. So as we move to the work of the Word, the first work of the Word that John tells us of is the creative work of the Word when he says that all things were made through Him and without Him was not anything made that was made. All right, so John's just made this huge statement. All right, he just made this huge statement that Jesus is God. And so what he is doing from this point forward is he is going to give us evidence of the deity of Christ from the healings, from the, from the 
changing of water to wine, the wedding of Cana, to the healing, to the feeding of the 5,000, to the raising of Lazarus in John chapter 11, John is going to show us time and time again of the creative work of the Word. And so to have the power of creation means that you must be what? God. That's a power that can alone be possessed by God alone. Now for me, as I read this text, um, I couldn't help but to think of Acts chapter 17. So once again, if you will, turn with me to Acts chapter 17. Let's look at verses 22 through 27 for just a moment. Acts chapter 17, verses 22 through 27. So Paul, if you remember the story here, Paul is in Athens, right? And as he was there in Athens, he goes in and he sees uh, you know, many statues there. And then ultimately he sees the statue to the unknown God. And as he's there, just, it just agitated him. And so he just got out and started sharing the gospel with people. But starting in verse 22, we read, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, he said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the object of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, what they, they should seek God, and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. So, you know, Paul, as, as already stated, the Greeks knew and they understood that there was this creative force behind everything, right? They understood that there was, they understood the transcendence of God, right? They understood that God, that there is God above all, distant, right? And there's a transcendence. But what they didn't get was the imminence of God. They didn't get the imminence of God that, that God is working in all and through all. And of course, as uh, polytheists, these uh, people from Athens, they want to make sure their bases are covered too, and they had the altar to the unknown God. But Paul there in Athens is explaining to them that this impersonal, unknown God is knowable because he's made, himself known to, he's made himself known to us by his son Jesus. And I just love this, what he says, that Jesus is actually not far from each one of us. And so the word that John speaks of is the God who made the world and everything in it. The word doesn't need anything god doesn't need anything but everything needs him they need him because he is self-existent he didn't need or he did not need creation but creation needs him the word as we will see in just a moment gives to all mankind life and breath and everything and all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made so that's the creative work of the word but now John transitions to the redemptive work of the word when he says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 
you know, in the book of John, as you read through, you know, many of you know that there are uh, multiple I am statements that Jesus makes, uh, seven, actually. And uh, two of which John alludes to here in the very beginning of the text. You know, he, Jesus says later on in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, in the Greek language, uh, there are actually two words that translate to the one word life in English. There is bios life, and there is zoe life. Bios life is biological life. Zoe life is spiritual life. It is quality of life. John and Jesus both are making clear here that Jesus is both bios and zoe. He's both, he's all life. If you think about it, before the fall, Adam and Eve, they had both. Right? They had bios life and they had zoe life. But when they were disobedient to God and they ate from the tree of which God told them not to eat, what happened? Immediately, there was a loss of zoe life, a loss of spiritual life. And they, their eyes were open to their sin, right? And they were shamed. And then ultimately, as the years went on, there would be a loss of bios life as well. But Focusing in on the Zoe life. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 2, he says that we are dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. That's how the Bible overwhelmingly portrays humankind. That we're dead. We're dead. We are the walking dead, ultimately. Because we do have bios life, but we do not have spiritual life. By nature, by nature, we are born dead, right? We are not, we, we don't born inclined to love God and to seek and obey his commandments. We are born rebellious. No one's ever taught their child to lie, to steal, to cheat, whatever. It comes naturally to a child. But because of this spiritual deadness is why Jesus, if you think about it in John chapter 3, as Jesus is having this conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus says that you must be born again, right? Because of our spiritual deadness, we must be born again. And it's important to understand that this is not something that we can do on our own. Only life can beget life. Only dead people produce dead people. But Jesus being life can produce life and that life that we so desperately need. Now, hear me, I want to say this. Regeneration, being born again, is a supernatural act of God alone, whereas he imparts new spiritual life to us, a new life that is sensitive to God, that is receptive to the gospel, and eventually becomes saving faith. And so we need to understand that it's to his glory and our benefit our saving faith is the fruit. The spiritual birth is the root. All right? Not the other way around. New spiritual life is the root, and our saving faith is the fruit. All right, still speaking of the redemptive work of the word, John states, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You know, Jesus, 
once again, looking at the I am statements in John 8, 12, he says, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so for Jesus to be life and to give life and to be light and to give light is his redemptive work. John is telling us here of Jesus' redemptive work. He's told us about his creative work, and now he's showing us his redemptive work. Now, um, as stated earlier regarding the fellowship of the word, uh, we learned that at the cross there was that momentary breaking of fellowship between the Father and the Son with Jesus' human nature. And Matthew 27, 45, we read, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. So there was this period of complete darkness over the land. Right? Complete darkness. However, because Jesus is the light of the world, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And light did break forth into the darkness. And you think about it, I assume most of you guys being in Bowling Green have been to Mammoth Cave. Just a quick show of hands, who's been to Mammoth Cave in here? All right, good. So you guys will get this illustration. You go to Mammoth Cave, there's a part in the tour where they turn off all the lights. And when they do, you absolutely cannot see your hand in front of your face. I mean, it is pitch black dark. But if there's any light whatsoever, the smallest of lights will illuminate the whole room. Right? Darkness can't come over, overcome the light. And Jesus is no small light. He is the light. And darkness cannot overcome him. Can't overcome because he's God. Right? All right. So we've seen the person of the word, and we've seen the work of the word, his creative work and his redemptive work. The last point here is behold our God, right? You know, after this amazing treatise that John has given us on the person and the work of the word, G, uh, John tells us later on, just a couple of verses down in John 14, he says this, this is the Christmas verse, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You know, please note that John says became rather than made, and it is important to understand that. For Jesus to be made flesh would mean that he changed forms, right? Which would be heresy, because we don't believe that Jesus is the Father and then he changes to be the Son and then changes to be the Holy Spirit. No, we believe in one God, three persons, right? You know, think about it. If I take a piece of clay and I mold it and I shape it and I change it from a clay, a piece of clay to a pot, I've changed it. We know that God doesn't change. So in this instance, you'd be saying that Jesus changed from one to the other if you say that he was made flesh. Simply put, what John is telling us here is that Jesus veiled himself in a human tent, yet without sin. He veiled himself in a human tent. He tabernacled with us, right? And at the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, Peter, James, and John got a sneak peek of what it looks like to peek behind that veil. And that's what we have here. When Jesus became flesh. The mystery of what we're talking about here is what theologians have called the hypostatic union. And the hypostatic union simply states that Jesus is 
fully God and fully man, right? He's not 90% God and 10% man or whatever, or vice versa. No, he is 100% God and 100% man. Because if, think about it like this, if Jesus was 90% God, that means that he's made it 90% of the way, but you got to make up the last 10% to get to God. But if he is only 10% man and 90% God, then you have to make up the first 10%, right? That's not what the Bible teaches. He is the way. He has made the way from start to finish. Thus, he is fully man and fully God. So, therefore, guys, I just want to ask you to behold our God. Our God is not some impersonal force, uh, but rather a person. A person who loves his children and has come to dwell with them. Yes, he is transcendent and he is above all, but yet he is also imminent. He is working in and through all. He is with us. He is Emmanuel, right? He is Emmanuel. Therefore, I ask you guys to behold our God. Our God is, he's not abandoned us, if you think about it. When we sinned and we turned our backs on God in the garden, he could have said, you know what? I'm done. I'm done with you. You're going to hell. And if he did that, God would be just and he would be right to do so. Because he is just and he is holy. But, but, because God is merciful, because God is loving, and he is kind, he's chosen to save us. And what a glorious truth. What a glorious truth. This is Christmas, guys, because he has come to rescue us from our sins and his ultimate wrath that is to come. This is what we're celebrating today, this whole month, right? So guys, in conclusion, in this uh, portion of our Advent calendar, we've looked at the revelation today. We've looked at the revelation of the gospel, and the gospel is simply this, the person and the work of Jesus Christ, and that he has come to rescue those who believe. And that's why John wrote this in the first place, right? And in the last place, in John 20, 30, 31, we read, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So guys, therefore let me ask you, do you believe? Do you believe? I never want to assume, I mean, I, I want to assume that Everyone in here believes. You come here on a cold Sunday. You know, I never want to make that assumption. I listened to a story this week of uh, John Wesley, of how John Wesley was this man who was deeply devoted to Bible study. He was deeply disciplined, extremely disciplined, so much so that he and his buddies had a little club they called the Holy Club. And... Uh, as John Wesley was uh, traversing the Atlantic Ocean to come to Georgia, John Wesley, uh, there was a storm that grew up, and this storm almost destroyed this ship. But as he was there, he noticed a, a group of people. They were at complete peace. They were completely okay with it. He himself was terrified, and 
All, everybody on the ship was crying out in terror and screaming. And afterwards, uh, John Wesley went to these people. They were Moravian Christians. And he went to them and said, and spoke to them about their experience. And they were saying that we're, we're okay to die. And they asked, are you a Christian? He said, yes, I am a Christian. I believe that Jesus is Lord. And the Moravian person asked him, they said, is he your Lord? So there's a difference there. There's a difference in having an intellectual knowledge and belief in who Jesus is, but it's another thing for him to be your Lord. And so I ask, do you believe? Do you believe in who Jesus is, and do you believe in what he has done? Do you believe in that? Do you trust in that? Well, if you're here and you do believe, I have one question, one challenge for you. Are you sharing with others what has been revealed to you? Because if you're not, I pray that you would. Because how are they going to believe if they don't hear? And how are they going to hear if no one goes and tells them? Right? Because Paul makes it very clear. So let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, uh, thank you for your word this morning. I thank you for who you are. And Lord, as I have uh, looked over this text many times in the past, uh, past weeks, I just, I'm mesmerized. I am just amazed at who you are and what you've done. To think that the God of the universe came to rescue me. It is so very humbling. It's so humbling, Lord God. I trust, Lord God, in the sufficiency of your word that has been spoken and that your word will not return void. And thinking there, Lord Jesus, in the garden, how you simply said that may they be sanctified in the truth. Your word is truth. I trust in that. I rest in that. Lord God, may you be glorified. In your name we pray. Amen.